Many of you probably have heard of um, Desmond Doss. Um, Desmond was <clears throat> a quiet, skinny kid from Virginia. Back in World War II, he joined the Army as a combat medic. But Desmond had a, had a belief. He didn't believe that he should take lives, and he didn't believe that he should carry a gun. And so he didn't typically fit into the model of what, what the Army was expecting. In fact, <clears throat> in fact, there was a movie made about him. Many of you probably have heard, Hacksaw Ridge. Now, this guy's who who went into the battle. In fact, this is a picture of the ridge that they were on. And then that, in that picture, you see at the top of the ridge, at that very, I'm walking over here, I got a TV over here, but at the top of the ridge right here, that's actually Desmond, the actual Desmond Doss. And this is the actual ridge in the, in the, in the story. When he, um, when he joined the military, when he joined the army, he didn't fit into what the typical soldier would look like. They, found, they thought he was gonna be the weakest link and on any, any team, you know, the, you're only as strong as the weakest link and they were very concerned about that. And so they began to harass him. His harass, the harassment actually turned to more of abuse when he would pray in the barracks. They would throw their boots and their shoes at him. They would beat on him. They'd do everything they could to try to get him to give up, to quit. But he believed in the cause, but he was just not going to, he was just not going to carry a, a weapon. He wasn't going to take a life. His captain, Jack Rover, tried to transfer Doss, and he wasn't able to. And when he was talking to Desmond about it, Desmond said to him, he said, in battle, I'll be right there by your side, saving lives while you're taking lives. And his captain said, you will not be by my side if you're not carrying a gun. In 1945, on the island, I've been, I've been tongue-tied lately, but on the island of Okinawa, there was this great battle that took place. The Japanese had buried themselves above in that, in that, in that ridge, and they had buried themselves in the holes and, and so forth. In fact, the Japanese called it a rain of steel because there was so much um, artillery fire and things that were going on that it just looked like steel dropping out of the sky. And as you, if you've seen the movie, as you know, they, the troops began to come down off the hill, but Desmond stayed up on the ridge because he knew there were so many lives that needed to be saved. In the movie, I, there's some pretty neat scenes of that. One of the things Desmond said is he just kept saying, Lord, please help me get one more. Please help get me get one more. You see, I love these movies when, of opposition where people are facing tremendous opposition and they overcome. But I love the comment where he said, Lord, just please help me get one more. Over the next 12 hours, he saved 75 men off that ridge. He would bring them to the edge, tie them on the rope and lower them down. And then he would go find another. And he would find, bring them to the ledge. He would help them lower them down over the ledge. 75 men, one of those men that he saved was his own captain, the one who told him he wouldn't be by his side. The soldiers who once shamed him now praised him. Carl Bentley, who was there, said this. He said it was as if God had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Captain Jack Rover, he said, of Desmond later, he said, he's one of the bravest persons alive and then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing because he was the one man who was doing everything he could to get Doss out. I always love those kinds of movies that like 
Rudy or Iron Will, those movies where guys face tremendous opposition and yet never lose sight of their purpose, where, where their, their goal, where their belief, they continue to battle through the opposition. When I think of 2020 this year, it has brought great difficulty and stress to our world. I have seen people become divided, on edge, angry with each other, like I've never seen before in my life. It's not just in our country, it's not just in our nation, it's in our community, it's in our families, it's in our church, it's in our homes. And I've grown concerned that I wonder if in the midst of the struggles and the opposition and the conflicts of our day, will the church, will the church, God's people, will they lose, will they lose their way? If I've heard it once since this pandemic has started, I've heard it I don't know how many times where people are concerned about what the church will be like, what will the church look like, what will God's people look like in the face of great difficulties and great opposition? Will they become more concerned about their own comfort? Will they become more concerned about their own personal interest and lose sight of God's plans and purposes for their lives? Will misplaced passions and priorities become the norm for their lives? Or will God's people continue to be faithful? Will God's people continue to move forward? You see, over the next three or four weeks, we're going to walk through a book called the book of Haggai. I call it Haggai the prophet. I'll tell you why I emphasize the prophet in a minute. Haggai is a man that God raised up in the middle of a time when Israel had faced great opposition and it had lost its way. They had become more concerned about their own personal interests, their own luxuries rather than the house of God, which represented God in their midst and God working in the presence of of his people. If you want to go ahead and turn to Haggai, let me tell you an easy way to find it. You just go, some of you that are on, on, yeah, I see, someone's holding up their phone. Like, I found mine real easy, right? Just type in Haggai, the days and the times. But if you're like me and you still carry a Bible, you just go to the Old New Testament and you start in the Old Testament and go, go back, you'll see Malachi and then you'll see uh, Zechariah and then you'll see Haggai. Haggai is the shortest, second shortest book in the Old Testament, only to Obadiah. Now, if you go left and you get to Zephaniah, you went too far, okay? So you go back, but it's the third, third from the last book of the Old Testament. It's a book called Haggai. It's a prophet, Haggai. Haggai, his name literally means festal one, where the festive, it was because of that, many believe that it's possible he was born on, the, on a feast day, um, therefore he received this name. We really don't know much about Haggai. When we look at the list of of, of, of folks who came back from Babylon after the captivity, for that's when he's writing. After the captivity, we don't see his name in any list. We find him raising up in the middle of a time when Israel has, has, kind, of, has kind of gone its own way. It, it forgot about God in many ways. Really not forget about, in fact, even one of the words they say, it's just not time yet. It's interesting how we do that, right? 
If you, don't, if you don't realize where I'm going today, so many times we do that with God, right? It's just not time yet, God. I've got all these activities. I need to take a break. It's not time yet, God. And we do that in our walks with him. And, and Haggai addresses that. It's, a, it's an awesome book. It's a book that speaks of revival. In these two chapters, these four, le- these four words that are messages that Haggai gives to the nation of Israel takes place in less than four months. From the time he preaches the first time and 24, laters when he, 24 days later when he preaches the second time, revival had begun in Israel. God had begun to wake his people up. They began to recognize the, their own apathy in their own midst and they begin to respond. It's, it's an amazing, it's amazing little letter. That, and just as God spoke then, I believe God can speak now. That we can learn from these things that Haggai has to say that God says through him. The dating of this book is, is in August 29th. How do I know that? If you're in Haggai in chapter 1, verse 1, that's probably the only verse we're going to look at today. I'm going to spend some time because in order to understand the powerful message of Haggai, we need to understand the context in which this book is taking place. But in Haggai chapter 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shetel and governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And if you look at verse two, he immediately starts going into the message. But in this first verse, there's a lot there to to recognize. We know by the date, because of the sixth month of the first day, we know that's about August 29th, 520 BC. It's interesting that it was said, there was some things said about Haggai that here he he didn't name the month. If you look in Ezra, you look in some of the other writers, they would name the actual month in which he had written. Haggai doesn't say that. He says the sixth month. Some things that might be a reference to the fact that he may have been older, uh, kind of his rebellion against not using the Babylonian calendar. So he was, still, he was still wanting to use some of the Jewish thoughts, but he uses that sixth month in order to identify the time. He, some even believe that he was probably there and saw Solomon's temple, so he might have been an older man. There's some of these things we just don't know about Haggai, but he comes onto the scene and he calls himself Haggai the prophet. And the reason I put that up there is that Haggai refers to himself in this little short book as Haggai the prophet five times more than any other prophet in the Old Testament. He calls himself the prophet. Habakkuk did that as well. It's interesting because I think it gives the sense whereby Haggai understood was very aware of his responsibility to proclaim that which God had put on his heart. He wanted him to understand he wasn't just coming in his own wisdom, his own understanding, but he was coming as one whom God had called and God had messaged. You see, God always, always proclaims his word throughout the history of humanity. Think about that. God has never left us in darkness, and there have been times where we felt like it. But his word has always been there. Whether you go back to the Garden of Eden throughout the history of humanity, his word has been proclaimed. Or he's raising up prophets and he's raising up people who would speak truth into the midst of humanity. In the midst of darkness, calling people to himself. Dear people of God, it is no different when this prophet walks onto the scene. 
It's no different today when you open up your Bible and you begin to read what God has to say to you. God has been communicating who he is and what he's going to do throughout the history of time. And his message has not changed. There have been times when I've looked and I've had confusion as I try to piece together things in God's word. But I know it's my inability to understand and I know as I begin to study, God begins to put those things. And there have been times I've prayed for years to understand truths of God's word. At the time when Haggai writes, he, here he's referencing the, the civil leader of that time, Zerubbabel. In fact, it was, Zerubbabel was uh, his grandfather, I believe it was, was Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim not Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. They, they kind of sound the same. And he was only a king for about a year because he kind of rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar kind of came and dealt with that issue. And here now, he also speaks to Jeho uh, Joshua, the high priest. These are the civil and spiritual leaders at this time when he writes. They're the ones accountable, to be honest with you, for the spiritual condition of, of Israel, that they, that, that they would have not been building and working on that temple. So in order to understand kind of the message of Haggai, the prophet, we need to look at, at some of the context in, in which we're writing. So I've, I'm going to have some slides, and if you will, go ahead and go to that first slide on the divided kingdom. This is interesting. When you look at, when you look at the kingdom, we see Israel and Judah, and so many times, in fact, I do it all the time, we use those interchangeably, Israel and Judah. But what you need to understand is that back before there was a king, God was to be the king. God was to lead them through judges and prophets and, and communicate to them. And they were to respond to God through priests and the sacrificial system. But Israel looked out and they saw other countries and other nations and they had kings and they wanted a king and they picked a king. A good looking man, full of stature, looked good in the nations. His name was Saul. If you know much about Saul, Saul did not have a heart for God. And God told Israel that if they went this route, it was going to bring a lot of pain. And it really did. Not just under Saul, but under the whole system where now the nation began to look to their king rather than to their God. It's one of the things I think in the midst of our political society that we've got to remember there's a God in heaven that we serve. We don't serve a president. We recognize him and we serve him as, as Americans. But it's God that's going to deliver us. He's our king. And the same thing happened to Israel. They began to look at, at Saul, and Saul brought great heartache, and God raised up David, a man after God's own heart, a man just like you and me, full of failures, and, and, and did some things that I kind of still scratch my head about, right? But he had a, he had a heart for God. It never, I remember the day it struck me how David was willing to give up his kingdom, willing to give up everything as Absalom was riding in, and he goes out the back and he builds this altar to God. And you know what the altar was about? Not to save his kingdom, not, to, not to all that. He just wanted to be right with God. And when I read about that, it struck my heart because I said, you know how many times, God, how many times do I hang on to those things that I want? I don't know if I wouldn't have been King David, I would try to hang on to my, my kingdom or the power or the luxury that comes with it. Would I be willing to give all that up just to be right with you? No wonder God called him a man after his own heart. 
If you went through the walk through the Bible back many years ago, we would say David had a full heart because he had a heart for God. After David, his son Solomon took on and became the king. He was a man who asked God for wisdom and God gave him great wisdom. In fact, under Solomon, Israel grew really to, to great power. I mean, they became a presence in, that, in, that, in the world at the time. Solomon began to, to make alliances with other nations and other, other kingdoms and marrying oftentimes to make those alliances. And, and these people were bringing in their worship from other gods. And all of a sudden, Solomon was allowing the worship of God to be distorted by, the, by, the, by, the, by, the, by these other gods coming in and being worshipped. That's what 1 Kings, 1 Kings 11, 9 through 13 is about. Where God comes to Solomon and he tells him he's going to rip away the kingdom from you. Because he began to worship other gods. He, he sinned and he rebelled against God. He did not keep God as his focus. But he tells him, he says, I'm not going to do that under your kingdom. I'll do it under your sons. Rehoboam was his son. And at the same time, if you were to go to 1 Corinthians, or 1 Kings, I'm sorry, chapter 11, you would read later where the prophet comes to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam becomes a major player at that time because King Jeroboam was going to be the king of the north, northern kingdom. And Jeroboam flees for his life in Egypt because Solomon finds out about it. So he's in Egypt and now Solomon has died and Rehoboam comes onto the scene. And, the, and, and under, the, under the king of, of Solomon, there was great taxation. It was hard on the people. And they come to Rehoboam and they're asking for to him to reconsider, to, to begin to look at these scenes. And, and he gets advice from one side, many of his father's visors, and they tell him to speak kindly and to be the servant to the people, hear what they have to say, and they will follow you all the, all the days of your life. But Rehoboam listens to his own advisors who tell him, hey, your, your little finger is like the waist of, of Solomon and your greatness. And as a result, he speaks harshly and, and the kingdom becomes divided. If you go to the next Next slide, if you would, thanks. I know there's a lot on this slide, but you'll see the kingdom is now divided. And you have Jericho, Jeroboam who takes over and he becomes the king of Israel. And this 10 of the tribes go north. And they begin, to, they begin to serve all the kings during this time. All of them were not righteous. Even though, even though the prophet told Jeroboam that if you, if you will serve God and you will stay in his ways, just as King David had done, God will bless you and he will establish you. But he doesn't. And northern kingdom goes and in 722, Israel falls to Assyria. And I just wanted you to see some of the prophets since we're talking about the prophets. These were the prophets to the northern kingdom like Elisha and Elijah, Jonah, Amos, Hosea. Remember Hosea? How many times did his wife keep going back into slavery and he'd go and he'd buy her out of slavery? Standing there in all the humility of being enslaved and, and, and then here's this prophet Hosea going again one more time and buying her out and God says that's like his love for them. They keep going back and God's demonstrating his love to them through the prophet Hosea. But what ends up happening in 722 B.C. is Israel falls to Assyria. Assyria had the philosophy when they, when they took over a country, they would, they would blend them, if you will. They'd take some and put them in this part, and they'd take some of their people and put them in, in, in where they were at. 
they had built, a, they had made Samaria their capital. And so you see all of these, these, these coming, live, uh, livelihoods coming together in these different countries, these different ways of thinking, these different gods. Remember in the New Testament, when the Jews had such a problem with the Samaritans because they weren't Jewish and they intermarried in with other countries. This is, this is some of where this began. And they began to worship their own gods. Now don't forget that because that's gonna become important in a minute when we look at Haggai. In the southern kingdom, Rehoboam began, I, I put Obadiah and Joel here and I put the question marks. These are probably the earliest possible dates. We really don't know. Some will even put Obadiah over here in 586 when the temple was destroyed. We, we don't know. There's some, there's, it's interesting reading if you wanna do that. But the prophets to the southern kingdom, to Judah, which was, the, which was the tribe of David, which if we went to 1 Kings chapter 11 there in verses nine and so forth, he says he's gonna keep that one tribe to, to honor David. It's the line through which Christ came. And Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin stayed there because Jerusalem was here. It was in the southern kingdom. And so you see the prophets that were speaking to, to Judah. And Judah had, I believe it was um, eight, eight kings that were righteous, kings like Josiah. There's some, there's some really neat men that God raised up during this time. You can see Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And so when we get over here in 586, the temple's destroyed in this exile period, and that's when Haggai comes onto the scene. It's 520 BC, and Malachi's the last one. So if we go to the next slide, it gets into a little bit more of the detail of that period of time. Israel had started making alliances with other countries. Uh, there were different things that were going on in 605. Babylon takes the first group of, of, of Jews back to Babylon. They fall into exile. In 59, and the king at that time was Jeroboam or Jehoiakim. 597, another king that came up and his name was Jehoiachin. He didn't necessarily follow uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He made alliances again with Egypt. He had Egypt and he had Assyria and there was alliances going on. And Nebuchadnezzar would keep coming back. So in 597, Nebuchadnezzar put his own king, but he eventually rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. In 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes, who was the king of Babylon. And Israel, uh, Jerusalem falls and the temple's destroyed. For the first time since Moses, God did not have a place of worship. Think about that for a moment. He's always been a tabernacle or a temple of Solomon, and now it's laid waste. Why is that so important? Because when they took the tabernacle, they knew God was in their midst. They knew God was there. It was his presence. It was such a manifestation of his presence and to his people, represented his dwelling. If you go into Lamentations, that's the prophet Jemiah writing a lament because now the temple has been destroyed and Jerusalem has fallen. You hear such sorrow written in 586, a vast number of, the, of Jews were, were taken captive and exiled because of God's judgment upon them for disobedience and rebellion. They began to rely on other countries to protect them. They began to worship other gods. They began to seep into their way of thinking. It makes me think a lot about today. The church needs to guard its heart 
We don't have a country maybe taking us into other countries. But we have a lot coming into our world to distract us and to deceive us. To take away our hearts of hope. To take away our hearts of faith. To cause us to look to other gods. To worship ourselves. To put our own desires and intent as the priority of our lives. Are we any greater that we don't think God would address that in our lives if we're his people? We need to be a people that watch our hearts. In 539 BC, just as God said he would, he raised up uh, the Medo-Persian Empire and they, they conquered Babylon and now Israel's un, or Judah's under the, under the reign or is it the tribute to the Medo-Persian Empire? Just as God said he would. You know, that's one of the nice things is God is sovereign, isn't he? You think God's wandering around when his people are in exile, wringing his hands, wondering, oh no, what's gonna happen next? What do I gotta do? You think God is out of control? Do you think God's out of control today? God forbid that we would think that or we would even entertain that idea. God is sovereign from everlasting to everlasting. In fact, I love it in the picture and some of the languages where it's like God is everlasting, everlasting past, everlasting future, everlasting present because God is not defined by time. He is everlasting. God isn't wandering around going, gee, what am I gonna do next? The God that we serve is sovereign and he's just as sovereign today as he was in the midst of these captivities, in the midst of these circumstances. Our God has not changed. From everlasting to everlasting, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he is not worried. And if I am his, why do I need to worry? For God is my refuge and my strength a very present help in the time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. One of the things that Cyrus, King Cyrus did in 538 is he gave an edict that allowed the Jews to return home. About 50,000, I believe, if I remember at the time, had returned home under Zerubbabel and Josiah's leadership, both the civil and spiritual leaders. And in 536, they were beginning to build the temple. In fact, they laid the foundation but one of the things that took place is during that time is opposition from some of their neighbors. You know who some of their neighbors were? It was the Samaritans. It was some of those people who had breed into to other nations and they allowed some of, the, some of their, their gods to be infiltrated and now Judaism and, and their worship of God had been mixed in with other gods. Because there was this philosophy by many of the kings of the day that they wanted to be at peace with all gods just in case their God is real and mine isn't, right? Where's the faith in that? For we know the true God. And, Israel, and Judah said, no, we don't need your help. They didn't want to fall after that and allow them to incorporate their, 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 their worship and, and their false truths. And so that group began to create great opposition. They wrote letters, they, they challenged, there was battle. And the people of God began to grow discouraged. Disillusionment set in. 
Their hearts were drained of strength, of faith, and the temple quits being built. The work stops. And there's about a 16-year delay before Haggai walks in on the scene. 16 years. God's, God's temple is laying there. The representation of God in their midst, the manifestation of him leading him and guiding him lays in rubbles. And you'll see next week when we get into Haggai, you know what God's people are doing? They're building their houses. In fact, it uses the term panel houses. It's referring to luxury. They're all about building their ways and the, their, their, their love of indulgence, the love of, of, of pleasure and what they're doing. And you know what they say about the temple? It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Sometimes I think today, dear people of God, let me just speak truth. I think sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we just say, God, it's not time yet. I've got to finish, I've got to finish this, this build I'm doing over here. I've, I've got this vacation I've been planning. I've got these things I've been wanting to do. And God, just got to hold off. <laughs> I've even heard of people using the term, I just need to take a vacation from God from the church, from his plans. Where is that biblical? How do, how do we do that? That we get so busy in our lives that we kind of put God off to the side and we say, not time yet. That's what happened with Israel. If you're like me, when I started studying this right now, you're probably uncomfortable and that's okay. That's okay. God sent Haggai into his people to stir them up that they might rebuild the temple and reorder their spiritual priorities. Maybe that's what God is wanting to do with us. Watch it in your own life. You get discouraged and hope fades and faith weakens. You know, when I do projects, there's only one goal in a project. You know what that is? Get it done. Okay, that's it. It's not about the process. It's not about what to do. When we did this shiplap wall out here, I was Matt, and I know Paul's helped us, but Matt and I were planning it out, and I was like, the wood came in. I'm like, oh, we'll get this done in a day. Easy, right? We'll stain in the morning and hang it in the afternoon. And, I, and, and if, you know, Matt would just look at me, he'd just kind of smile and go, I don't I think it's going to take a little longer than that, Greg, you know? I mean, it's just nailing wood on the wall, isn't it? I mean, that's all it is. It's kind of my philosophy, the way I go about those things. And, you know, Matt's measuring, and the ladies would walk by and go, oh, I wish y'all would come do that in, in our home. And they're like, well, I'm the cheap version. He's the expensive version because it's going to look right. Me, it's just going to be wood, wood nailed to the wall. Lady and I have been working on our house, and this last week, for the first time ever in my life, I hung uh, subway tile. Never done that before. So there was this whole process. Now, I've learned, because my wife is like Matt and folks who are very precise, I've learned I let her measure. Because if she measures, it's going to be right. If I measure, it's going to be good enough. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a term I use a lot. It's good enough. You know, I was taught as a young boy that a good carpenter does what? He hides his mistakes really well, right? So that's, that's the whole secret. God made cock for a reason, you know, to fill in that gap that you have, right? So that's kind of the mindset that I had. Well, we had one day, we started early on a Saturday morning, and man, we started going, and and Lydia would say, how does that look? And I go, it's good enough. 
And she'd pull it down, remeasure it, and put it back up. Because cause for me, I'm, I'm, I'm like, it, all I want to do is get the job done. That's all that matters. That's the number one goal of any project is get it done. But I remember as the day went on, we were both getting tired. By the end of that day, we're like, everything looked good enough. You know what I mean? You grew tired. You start losing a little bit of that perspective of, I'm, yeah, there is cock. We can put cock in there. It'll be fine. And we do that spiritually. We grow tired, opposition comes along, difficulties arise, we grow discouraged, we become disillusioned, and if we don't address it in our lives, time begins to elapse. And as time begins to elapse, apathy sets in. And as apathy sets in, complacency grows. And then finally, we're just indifferent. We're indifferent about the things of God. We start, we start going, well, what difference does it make? I mean, I prayed all those years and nothing ever happened. I asked God to fix this and he didn't fix it. And discouragement sets in and disillusionment. Man, it's just hard. If you wanna walk after God, it's hard. It's not easy, it's hard. And then we start, we start going for a while and we just, we just look at God and we say, you know what, God, I just gotta be who I am. I just gotta live and be true to who I am and, and God's gonna be okay with that and just gotta be, it's just the way it is. And, and we go down another course. I just don't feel God. I just don't feel him. You know, I heard the message, just didn't do anything for me anymore. I read the Bible, I just don't feel I just don't sense God there anymore. In fact, I'm just not even sure God's there. And that's what happens when these, in, this, in this delay. If we allow discouragement and we allow disillusionment, we allow apathy and we allow complacency and we allow those things to take root into our lives, next thing we don't know how we got there, we're just there. I remember one day Doug and I went to lunch and that's typical when we go to lunch, we pray. And as we were praying over our, our, our lunch and then we began to talk, we didn't realize there was a gentleman sitting right next to the ta table who was at the time a police officer. I'm assuming he still is, I don't know, I haven't seen him since. And we began to talk about some spiritual things and things that were going on. Well, the guy came over and he said to us, I'll never forget, he said, you know, God just used you, you all to really convict my heart. He said, when I was a young man, I went off into the military. I'd always grown up in the church. I believed in God. I trusted God. He said, I went off in the military. And he said, somewhere along the line, I just began to grow distant. And I, I don't even know how it happened. He said, I got out and I got a job. I got married. And he said, the next thing I knew is just, there was just distance and he said, as I saw you guys sit there and pray and as y'all begin to talk, I realized I'm the one that walked away from God. Somewhere along the line in his life, complacency and apathy and indifference took root. And when you let it go, dear people of God, it just, it just goes. And you become indifferent and you're not bothered by what's going on in the church. You really don't care. You're not bothered about how God is wanting to work in your community. 
You're not bothered by how God wants to show grace to our neighbors and to our friends and to our folks around us. The message of the gospel does not become the priority anymore. It's no different than Israel going, it's, oh, we know the temple's laying there in ruins, it's just not time yet. And if we're not careful, we begin to say the same thing, it's just not time yet. You know, when my kids are graduated and they're out of high school, I'll get back in, I'll get back and go in church. Or I'll get start seeking God more. Where when this time passes, then, I, then I'll pursue him. And then we find ourselves lost. You know, this morning, I think God is got a message for us from this book in Haggai. Just as Haggai, God used Haggai to wake up Israel and for them to get back to work, I think there's some things in our lives that we need to look at. I mean, let me ask you a question. And I'm asking myself, I've been, I've been praying over this book and I've been praying over this in my own life. And where is it that God wants to speak to me during this time and this in this book, in the area of misplaced passions and priorities in your own life, where does God want to speak? If the Holy Spirit came along, what are those areas that he wants to address? You know, many times we already know those areas. I mean, what would it look like, dear people of God, that if, if you've been walking in with God and your life, your walk with him has just been static, what would it look like if God were to revive that? What would it look like that today we leave with a little bit more hope, a little bit more faith, revived in our hearts, that we serve an everlasting king? You see, I think God just, he, he just loves us too much to leave us in apathy. He loved Israel. He sent Haggai because he loved them. And God raises up voices in our lives to shake us, just as he was shaking Israel. I mean, what would it look like? God loves us too much to, to just leave us in our apathy and to leave us in our complacency, to leave us in our indifference. And sometimes we evaluate ourselves and we go, well, I read my Bible every day and I take notes and, and I do this. But you know in the depths of your soul if you're drifted from God. You see, God loves us too much to leave us there. He did not send his son, Jesus, to die for us so that we could sit on the couch and do nothing. God wants to glorify himself through his people, through you, his people, through me. And I have one life to live for him. I don't want it to be a life where I live for my own pleasures and my own goals. And God, he more than abundantly gives us those things. But he becomes the passion of our life. Where might God speak in your life during this time about your own misplaced passions and priorities? See, I, dear people of God, I think it's a time to pray. It's a time to pray.
One of the things I asked the staff to do, and I, I did this week, and is I asked, I asked our people to, to take, take one meal and fast and speak to God. Ask him to speak into your life. Ask him to touch those areas in your life that need to be touched. You know where they are. You've been pushing against the door, hoping it doesn't open, it doesn't spill out, that you don't have to address it. But where are those areas? What is it that God is wanting to address in your life? I'm asking that. So I think it's time to pray. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray right now. I'm gonna ask you to pray. You guys online, go ahead and put down your lunch. <laughs> maybe you're sitting there, maybe you wanna pull your family together at home. Maybe get on your knees. Let's just have a moment of quietness. Don't worry, the restaurants will still be there. I guess what some of us aren't shopping. All that stuff that you're worried about that's gotta leave, it'll all be there when you leave, I promise. Just take a moment in the quietness of your heart. If you wanna kneel at your chair, kneel at your chair at home, kneel at home, pull your people together. And let's ask God, let's just have a moment of quiet before our God. Ask God to speak into your life. May his will be done. Father, hear the words of your people. Father, you, you set aside your own. Father, there may be some this morning who have grown complacent and stagnant in their walks. Father, you love them too much to leave them there. Father, may your spirit move among us and touch each one of our own hearts. Lord, you have, you have spoken to my heart several times in this study. You've challenged me about my own ways, my own thoughts. How easy it is for me, Father, to exclude you out of my life. Or do you, Father, even just to do something and as a token to try to show you that, Father, I still care about you. But, Father, it's not, 
It's not the tokens you desire from us. It's our faith. Unbridled trust. A certainty about who you are and who we are. Almighty God, may you move among us that you would do your work. Father, I pray this week that you move among your people here and that you work in their hearts, in our hearts. That, Father, you would touch us in such a way that, Lord, we would grow in our faith, we would be shaken from our complacencies, and, Father, we would be revived about our certainty about who you are. Father, there's ups and downs of life, and we all experience them. But let us, oh God, let us not allow opposition and difficulty to discourage us to the point of disillusionment, to apathy, to complacency, to indifference. So Father, please, we ask of you that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.